Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messages ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, according to the QUT, so that's the Queensland University of Technology, uh, the majority of the Australian public, 79% they say, believe climate change is an important issue for them. Um, And the topic today isn't climate change. I'm just going to be talking about belief systems and the level of commitment that we have to our beliefs. And I'm using climate change as an example. It's a belief system which is driving our media, it's driving our governments, it's driving our education. And to many, it's pretty much a religious commitment that they hold. But how committed are they? Because the QUT then goes on to say that 60% of consumers are unwilling to pay any more to purchase a product that meets their climate-friendly convictions, right? So in other words, they believe it, and they believe it vehemently, but not if it's going to cost them anything. And so the way this works out in our nation is we expect to have solar panels up on our rooftops, but only if the government subsidises them for us. And folk want to put an electric car in their garage but only if the Commonwealth forks out to help them to get into that shiny new Tesla they want and installs charging stations and preferably free charging stations all over the countryside. And they expect those pesky farmers to stop pushing down trees and to stop them from breeding those environmentally unfriendly cows who keep burping. And they want them to stop using fuel and chemicals to grow their crops and they want all of this to happen without their grocery bill going up. It's a case study of principle without conviction. It's a very good example of of voicing voicing conviction without shouldering the cost of that conviction. Principle without conviction. Now, as we read that Bible reading just then, did you in your mind consider that the gospel that we believe, consider that the gospel that we proclaim 
could possibly be just a little bit out of step with what Jesus proclaimed. Or maybe it could be a lot different. I mean, the, the whole name it and claim it thing, that's an easy target. It's a nonsense. The whole God wants you to be rich and, and all of the promises are guaranteed of healing and of having a carefree life and, and promises of, of having all manner of physical blessings now, that sort of stuff is obviously out of step with what Jesus taught. But that's not what I'm going to be talking about. Today, I want us to look a little bit closer to home, to ask good Bible-believing evangelical Protestants, does the gospel that we believe, does the gospel that we proclaim reflect the gospel of Jesus? You see, for many of us, we've been taught, it's really easy to become a Christian. Just believe in Jesus and say the sinner's prayer and boom, you're saved. We might even pull out Romans chapter 10 and, and say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's where we end the gospel. And we don't go on to tell them about Romans chapter 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. And so our picture of the gospel might be a confession of faith without humble subservience to Jesus. Or it might be about forgiveness without repentance. Or it might be about blessing without current suffering. It might be about faithfulness but without the public disgrace that goes with that faithfulness. And it's where discipleship is presented as something which is being on our terms. So when Jesus calls, we choose how, where, and when we may or may not follow him. In fact, for many, the gospel proclaimed can be boiled down to adding a bit of Jesus to your life and adding a little bit of Jesus to your own goals and your own plans. I want to tell you today that is an empty, anemic, pathetic version of Christianity. The gospel of Jesus is so very, very different. And this is what baptism is about. Your old life is finished. You have been put to death. And becoming a Christian is about being born again into a completely new and completely different life. And so in baptism, you go down under the water, signifying a putting to death of self, dead, buried, gone. The old life is dead. The old life is gone. And then when you come up out of that water, provided the preacher lets you up, when you come up out of that water, signifying being raised to a completely new life with Jesus. And what our generation need to rediscover is the radical upending of all that we were to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. 
Now, my Bible gives this passage the heading, the cost of following Jesus. I don't think it's really the best heading. I mean, there's other places that talk a lot about the cost of following Jesus, like where Jesus says, you know, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross to follow me. That, there's places where he talks about being prepared for persecution, etc. If I was to give this a heading, I think I'd say the nature of discipleship. It's what being a disciple of Jesus looks like. It's a picture of the preeminence of Christ that, that means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is boss. He's number one. And he is the most important thing. And we give up all else to follow him. What do we give up? All. We give up all else to follow Jesus. If Jesus truly is the Son of God, and he is, the only form of commitment to Jesus that could possibly be appropriate is total and complete submission to him. If I continue to call the shots, and if I continue to fit Jesus in amongst my plans, who's Lord of my life? Not Jesus. And if Jesus is not Lord of my life, am I really a disciple of Jesus at all? Or do I merely voice conviction without shouldering the cost of that conviction? Right. So a whole village has just rejected Jesus. And that sort of sets the tone here. Um, Jesus wanted somewhere to stay for the night and it's, it was just like the night of his birth all over again. No room at the inn. Not for you, buddy. And we talked about this last week about uh, how Jesus was rejected and we will be too. And in the lowliness of rejection, we are great in the kingdom of God. So that's what we talked about. We sort of re reread some of what we covered last week. So a village has rejected Jesus Right, you're not welcome here. So they hit the road again and, and to head on to the next village. And as they travel on that road, there's three interactions that Jesus has with three potential disciples of Jesus. The first and the third, they volunteer to him. We want to be your disciples. We want to follow you. The middle one, Jesus calls. So the first one says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, this is the nature of discipleship. Jesus was essentially homeless. Now, that doesn't mean that, that every disciple will be homeless. It doesn't even mean that the majority of disciples will be homeless. The nature of discipleship is not merely voicing conviction. The nature of discipleship is following Jesus wherever he leads because he is Lord. And the point that Jesus is making here isn't about homelessness. It's about rejection. Even the wild animals have a place to live. They are in their natural environment. So the fox, where does he live? He digs a little burrow in under a log. 
That's where the fox lives. That's his natural environment. The bird, where does he live? Well, the birds of the air, they build a nest up in the tree. That's their natural environment fits them. They live there. But Jesus, he was just rejected by a whole village. Nowhere for you to sleep. And being a disciple of Jesus in this world, you are different. The world is no longer your natural environment. In Hebrews, it talks about how we are strangers, we are aliens, we are foreigners in this world. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're merely passing through this world and we are foreigners to it. This world is no longer our natural environment. And just as Jesus was rejected, being a disciple of Jesus means the world will reject you too. And so stepping up to follow Jesus, committing to follow Jesus, takes real resolve. We trust in God, knowing that our home is with him and God is with us wherever we go. Now, it's only a couple of times that I've ever been asked why the Bush Disciples logo has a hat hanging on a cross. And it's simply because of the saying, where I hang my hat, that's my home. Um, you come in from work, you take your hat off and you hang it up because you're home. And in Christ, we are home. That's what our logo represents. Now, at the moment, there is a chronic housing shortage in Australia. Has anyone noticed this? If you've got friends in the city, they really notice it. But near in St George, we're starting to notice it. But what Jesus is talking about here isn't a general no place to sleep. He's talking about rejection and even eviction because you choose to follow Jesus. But that's okay because our home is with the Father. And this is probably the difference between modern evangelism and what Jesus taught. Modern evangelism probably won't tell you that. Uh, they want to bait the hook and hook you first. And then maybe later on, if you, if you come across a preacher who teaches you the Bible, or if you read the Bible yourself, you might learn some of the nature of what you've just committed to. But Jesus was always up front. He didn't put on the tasty bait and get, right, come and follow me. He told them straight up front, yeah, you can follow me, but it's going to be tough. You may not even have a place to live if you follow me. The nature of discipleship is to be a foreigner to this world. The second interaction is where Jesus says to another bloke, follow me, and he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, that sounds like a very reasonable request to me. What do you reckon? Pretty reasonable request. I mean, family responsibilities are really important. And even the Ten Commandments stipulate that we are to honour our father and mother. But Jesus' reply, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Right? So Jesus called, come follow me, and the man's response was, yes, just not yet. 
Now, as I read the commentaries, there's been a lot of ink spilled over trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. And a common explanation was, well, his dad obviously wasn't dead yet, otherwise he wouldn't have been out on the road with Jesus already. So his dad, he must want to go back home and wait until he gets sick and dies. It could take years, but, well, maybe. But you know what? I think that's missing the point that Jesus is making. When Jesus called Levi the tax collector, he left everything. Immediately, he left everything and followed Jesus. But this is an entirely different case. The tax collector, he left what was quite a dubious occupation. He left his riches. He left the the source of his wealth. But this man is wanting to bury his dad. This represents the most noble of duties. And yet the call of Jesus to follow him is more important than that. The call of Jesus to follow him is more important than the most noble of duties. Nothing trumps this. And there's two facets to this. It's the initial call to repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a Christian. What excuse is holding you back? There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that should keep you from coming to faith to Jesus and making a commitment to him. But there's another facet to this as well. Jesus wasn't just telling this man to believe. He was directing him to proclaim the gospel. So he's also talking about how we live this out. This is about the nature of discipleship. Another word for delayed obedience would be what? Disobedience. If a parent says to a child, pack up your toys, we're leaving now, and the child says, I'm just going to finish making this Lego car so the next kid that comes along will have something nice to play with, well, that might be a, a rather noble thing, but they've just disobeyed their parent. Delayed obedience is disobedience. You see, with his mouth, this man called Jesus Lord. And the request that he made was a very reasonable request. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What we don't know is what he did when Jesus denied his request. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We don't know what he did. Did he obey Jesus or didn't he? Don't know. But this is where the rubber hits the road, you see. How we respond to Jesus when he denies our requests, that indicates where we're really at with Jesus. That indicates whether Jesus really is our Lord. You see, it's easy To say that Jesus is Lord if he's giving me everything that I will. It's not so easy for Jesus to be my Lord when he denies my request. And when his will is not what I want. If Jesus truly is that man's Lord, what would he do? 
he would go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's what his Lord commanded him to do. You see, the modern notion of following Jesus seems to be about incorporating Jesus into the pursuit of our own plans. That's self-lordship. Discipleship is following the word of Jesus. Even if you pray and, and seek something and he denies your request, discipleship is following the word of Jesus. Living the Christian life isn't simply a matter of praying to mould God's will to fit our own plans and desires. Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, is Lord. And so we shape and we mould our lives to fit his will. And so we come to the third interaction. Another man volunteers to follow Jesus, but with conditions. I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those who are at home. Once again, seems like a very reasonable request, don't you think? You agree? Reasonable request? And I th when I read this, I, I think of Elisha. You know the story of Elijah and Elisha? So Elisha, he was actually a farmer. He had a very big tractor. He was out ploughing his paddock with 12 yoke of oxen, big tractor for the day. And the prophet Elijah comes along. So Elisha's ploughing that direction. Elijah walks this direction, takes his coat off, throws it onto, onto Elisha and keeps walking. Now, what that was, it was a sign of him passing on the job of being God's prophet, right? So you've heard the saying, passing on the mantle, right? The mantle was the coat, the cloak. And he just keeps on walking. And, and Elisha quickly catches up with Elijah and says, look, I'll come. Just let me go and kiss my mum and dad goodbye. And then I'll come. And the way Elijah responded, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, whatever. What, what, what is that to me? What, what are you to me? It's sort of almost like you're saying, well, if you don't want to come, don't come. But Elisha wasn't trying to get out of it. Immediately what, what Elisha does is he goes back to that massive tractor, that 12 yoke of oxen, and he slaughters them. And then he uses the plough, the wooden plough, as firewood, to burn the, to cook up the meat. Right, so this was, this was a twofold thing. It was a sacrifice to God, and it was used to feed the, the people who were around him, maybe as a quick farewell party. But the, the whole point was, his break with his old life, was immediate and permanent. God had called Elisha away from farming. And for Elisha, there was no going back to that. He, he, he had permanently destroyed his farming plant. And Jesus uses the image of ploughing in, in a different way. He uses all this as, as a teaching moment. No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, right? Elisha understood this. That's why he burned his livelihood. He wouldn't be going back to it. He couldn't get down the road with Elijah 
And, and the going gets a bit tough and go, well, blow you, buddy, I'm going back farming again. He had nothing to farm with. He'd made that break, permanent break. What's the point Jesus is making? Machine doing operations changed a lot since I was doing it. And no, I wasn't doing it with oxen for those who are thinking that. Um, but in my day, if you were planting the front paddock and that'd be the paddock that you'd put your best operator on because all your neighbours who drive past, you want them to see nice, straight, even rows. You'd put your best operator there planting that paddock. These days, the auto steer GPS takes care of that. Um, but before the days of GPS, to cut a straight line across a paddock, you'd have to aim the tractor at a tree on the horizon. Now, a bit of a problem if you live on a treeless plain, but if you're not on a treeless plain, you can usually find a tree on the horizon somewhere and you aim for that. And as you're steering, you've just got to keep the middle mark on your bonnet, aiming straight at that tree. And the problem comes when you sort of look behind, take a quick glance behind to just see everything's going all right behind and then go, was it that one or that one I was aiming for? Because you've sort of wandered a bit off course. It's when you take your eyes off it that the rot sets in. Is that right, Ardrake? Yeah. But you've just got to keep aiming for that tree and just keep going and keep going. And the nature of discipleship is when you start following Jesus, you keep following Jesus. Was Jesus saying that it was wrong for that man to kiss mum and dad goodbye? No, he wasn't. It was just a teaching moment. The nature of discipleship is full-on commitment to following Jesus. Jesus takes precedence in all things. So what do we learn from this? Because I don't know about you, but by these standards of Jesus, I'm a dismal failure. By these standards, I'm not fit for the kingdom of God. There's been times when I've known what God wanted me to do. I haven't done it. There's been times when I've heard his call and I've said, just not yet, a bit later perhaps. And sometimes I'm not focused entirely on Jesus and I wander off into sin and into the ways of the world. Is it only me? Or is it you too? The reality of the matter is we've voiced our conviction without shouldering the cost of that conviction that Jesus is Lord. Principle without conviction. So I praise God. I praise God for his grace and for his mercy and that he hasn't written us off. I praise God that there is forgiveness and that there is second chances and in my case, 50th chances But having said that, this teaching of Jesus 
demands that we get real with Jesus. If you and I are not fit for the kingdom of God, then something needs to change. Wouldn't you agree? That Christmas carol we sing, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. If we're not fit for the kingdom of God because we're always looking back, it's time to get real with Jesus. It's time to fix our eyes on Jesus and become the faithful people of conviction that he has saved us to be. Is this even possible? Is it even possible? In God, yes, it is. By his Holy Spirit in us, we're not only, we don't only have the calling, but we also have the power to stand firm in Christ. Have you ever noticed that, that the disciples throughout the Gospels, they're a bit all over the place? But then something changed. There came a point where they were no longer all over the place. There came a point where they were fixed totally on Jesus. When was that? was when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit. From that time, once they received the Holy Spirit, they never wavered. Now, the, the nature of discipleship, it, it's a tough thing. But God carries us in this journey through his Spirit. Our part is to shrug off the things of this world and to fix our eyes on Jesus, because he is number one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that Jesus gave himself on the cross, that we might be saved. And we thank you that in your mercy, you call us into this new born again relationship with Jesus, where we no longer live for self, but live entirely for you. Lord, forgive us for when we try to hold on to the old life. Forgive us for when we do not fix our eyes on you and for when we wander off into sin and disobedience. And we pray for the strength of your Holy Spirit. This world is not our natural environment. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we don't belong in this world. And so, Lord, we pray for your strength, that we will trust in you through all manner of rejection, always looking forward to the goal with you in glory. And in all things, may the Lord Jesus Christ be preeminent, be number one in our lives, for he is Lord, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord, but for us today, he indeed is our Lord and we submit to you entirely, for you are our Lord. Amen.